we continue with Justice Sotomayor's 2018 dissenting opinion in Trump v. Hawaii. Part 2 Rather than defend the president's problematic statements, the government urges this court to set them aside and defer to the president on issues related to immigration and national security. The majority accepts that invitation and incorrectly applies a watered-down legal standard in an effort to short-circuit plaintiff's Establishment Clause claim. The majority begins its constitutional analysis by noting that this court, at times, has engaged in a circumscribed judicial inquiry when the denial of a visa allegedly burdens the constitutional rights of a U.S. citizen. As the majority notes, Mandel held that when the executive branch provides a facially legitimate and bona fide reason for denying a visa, courts will neither look behind the exercise of that discretion nor test it by balancing its justification. In his controlling concurrence in Carey v. Din, 2015, Justice Kennedy applied Mandel's holding and elaborated that courts can look behind the government's exclusion of a foreign national if there is an affirmative showing of bad faith on the part of the consular officer who denied the visa. The extent to which Mandel and Din apply at all to this case is unsettled, and there is good reason to think they do not. Indeed, even the government agreed at oral argument that where the court confronts a situation involving all kinds of denigrating comments about a particular religion and a subsequent policy that is designed with the purpose of disfavoring that religion— but that dots all the I's and crosses all the T's, Mandel would not put an end to judicial review of that set of facts. In light of the government's suggestion that it may be appropriate here for the inquiry to extend beyond the facial neutrality of the order, the majority rightly declines to apply Mandel's narrow standard of review and assumes that we may look behind the face of the proclamation. In doing so, however, the court, without explanation or precedential support, limits its review of the proclamation to rational basis scrutiny. That approach is perplexing, given that in other Establishment Clause cases, including those involving claims of religious animus or discrimination, this court has applied a more stringent standard of review. As explained above, the proclamation is plainly unconstitutional under that heightened standard. But even under rational basis review, the proclamation must fall. That is so because the proclamation is divorced from any factual context from which we could discern a relationship to legitimate state interests and its sheer breadth is so discontinuous with the reasons offered for it that the policy is inexplicable by anything but animus. The President's statements, which the majority utterly fails to address in its legal analysis, strongly support the conclusion that the proclamation was issued to express hostility toward Muslims and exclude them from the country. 
Given the overwhelming record evidence of anti-Muslim animus, it simply cannot be said that the proclamation has a legitimate basis. The majority insists that the proclamation furthers two interrelated national security interests, preventing entry of nationals who cannot be adequately vetted and inducing other nations to improve their practices. But the court offers insufficient support for its view that the entry suspension has a legitimate grounding in those national security concerns, quite apart from any religious hostility. Indeed, even a cursory review of the government's asserted national security rationale reveals that the proclamation is nothing more than a religious gerrymander. The majority first emphasizes that the proclamation says nothing about religion. Even so, the proclamation, just like its predecessors, overwhelmingly targets Muslim-majority nations. Given the record here, including all the president's statements linking the proclamation to his apparent hostility toward Muslims, it is of no moment that the proclamation also includes minor restrictions on two non-Muslim-majority countries, North Korea and Venezuela, or that the government has removed a few Muslim-majority countries from the list of covered countries since EO1 was issued. Consideration of the entire record supports the conclusion that the inclusion of North Korea and Venezuela and the removal of other countries simply reflect subtle efforts to start talking territory instead of Muslim, precisely so the executive branch could evade criticism or legal consequences for the proclamation's otherwise clear targeting of Muslims. The proclamation's effect on North Korea and Venezuela, for example, is insubstantial, if not entirely symbolic. A prior sanctions order already restricts entry of North Korean nationals, and the proclamation targets only a handful of Venezuelan government officials and their immediate family members. As such, the president's inclusion of North Korea and Venezuela does little to mitigate the anti-Muslim animus that permeates the proclamation. The majority contends that the proclamation reflects the results of a worldwide review process undertaken by multiple cabinet officials. At the outset, there is some evidence that at least one of the individuals involved in that process may have exhibited bias against Muslims. As noted by one group of amici, the Trump administration appointed Frank Wuko to help enforce the president's travel bans and lead the multi-agency review process. According to Amiki, Wuko has purportedly made several suspect public statements about Islam. He has publicly declared that it was a great idea to stop the visa application process into this country from Muslim nations in a blanket type of policy, that Muslim populations living under other-than-Muslim rule will necessarily turn to violence, that Islam prescribes violence and warfare against unbelievers, and that Muslims, by and large, resist assimilation. But even setting aside those comments, 
the Worldwide Review does little to break the clear connection between the proclamation and the president's anti-Muslim statements. For no matter how many officials affix their names to it, the proclamation rests on a rotten foundation. The president campaigned on a promise to implement a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the country, translated that campaign promise into a concrete policy, and made several statements linking that policy in its various forms to anti-Muslim animus. Ignoring all this, the majority empowers the president to hide behind an administrative review process that the government refuses to disclose to the public. Furthermore, evidence of which we can take judicial notice indicates that the multi-agency review process could not have been very thorough. Ongoing litigation under the Freedom of Information Act shows that the September 2017 report the government produced after its review process was a mere 17 pages that the government's analysis of the vetting practices of hundreds of countries boiled down to such a short document raises serious questions about the legitimacy of the president's proclaimed national security rationale. Beyond that, Congress has already addressed the national security concerns supposedly undergirding the proclamation through an extensive and complex framework governing immigration and alien status. The Immigration and Nationality Act sets forth in painstaking detail a reticulated scheme regulating the admission of individuals to the United States. Generally, admission to the United States requires a valid visa or other travel document. To obtain a visa, an applicant must produce certified copies of documents proving her identity, background, and criminal history. An applicant must also undergo an in-person interview with a State Department consular officer. Any alien who has engaged in a terrorist activity, incited terrorist activity, or been a representative member or endorser of a terrorist organization, or who is likely to engage after entry in any terrorist activity, or who has committed one or more of the many crimes enumerated in the statute, is inadmissible and therefore ineligible to receive a visa. In addition to vetting rigorously any individuals seeking admission to the United States, the government also rigorously vets the information-sharing and identity management systems of other countries, as evidenced by the Visa Waiver Program, which permits certain nationals from a select group of countries to skip the ordinary visa application process. To determine which countries are eligible for the Visa Waiver Program, the government considers whether they can satisfy numerous criteria for example, using electronic fraud-resistant passports, 24-hour reporting of lost or stolen passports, and not providing a safe haven for terrorists. The Secretary of Homeland Security, in consultation with the Secretary of State, 
also must determine that a country's inclusion in the program will not compromise the law enforcement and security interests of the United States. Eligibility for the program is reassessed on an annual basis. As a result of a recent review, for example, the executive decided in 2016 to remove from the program dual nationals of Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Sudan. Put simply, Congress has already erected a statutory scheme that fulfills the putative national security interests the government now puts forth to justify the proclamation. Tellingly, the government remains wholly unable to articulate any credible national security interest that would go unaddressed by the current statutory scheme absent the proclamation. The government also offers no evidence that this current vetting scheme, which involves a highly searching consideration of individuals required to obtain visas for entry into the United States, and a highly searching consideration of which countries are eligible for inclusion in the visa waiver program, is inadequate to achieve the proclamation's proclaimed objectives of preventing entry of nationals who cannot be adequately vetted and inducing other nations to improve their vetting and information-sharing practices. For many of these reasons, several former national security officials from both political parties, including former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, former State Department legal advisor John Bellinger III, former Central Intelligence Agency Director John Brennan, and former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper, have advised that the proclamation and its predecessor orders do not advance the national security or foreign policy interests of the United States, and, in fact, do serious harm to those interests. Moreover, the proclamation purports to mitigate national security risks by excluding nationals of countries that provide insufficient information to vet their nationals. Yet, as plaintiffs explain, the proclamation broadly denies immigrant visas to all nationals of those countries, including those whose admission would likely not implicate these information deficiencies. In addition, the proclamation permits certain nationals from the countries named in the proclamation to obtain non-immigrant visas, which undermines the government's assertion that it does not already have the capacity and sufficient information to vet these individuals adequately. Equally unavailing is the majority's reliance on the proclamation's waiver program. As several amici thoroughly explain, there is reason to suspect that the proclamation's waiver program is nothing more than a sham. The remote possibility of obtaining a waiver pursuant to an ad hoc, discretionary, and seemingly arbitrary process scarcely demonstrates that the proclamation is rooted in a genuine concern for national security. In sum, none of the features of the proclamation highlighted by the majority 
supports the government's claim that the proclamation is genuinely and primarily rooted in a legitimate national security interest. What the rebutted evidence actually shows is that a reasonable observer would conclude, quite easily, that the primary purpose and function of the proclamation is to disfavor Islam by banning Muslims from entering our country. As the foregoing analysis makes clear, plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits of their Establishment Clause claim. To obtain a preliminary injunction, however, plaintiffs must also show that they are likely to suffer irreparable harm in the absence of preliminary relief, that the balance of equities tips in their favor, and that an injunction is in the public interest. Plaintiffs readily clear those remaining hurdles. First, plaintiffs have shown a likelihood of irreparable harm in the absence of an injunction. As the district court found, plaintiffs have adduced substantial evidence showing that the proclamation will result in a multitude of harms that are not compensable with monetary damages and that are irreparable. Among them, prolonged separation from family members, constraints to recruiting and retaining students and faculty members to foster diversity and quality within the university community, and the diminished membership of the Muslim Association. Second, plaintiffs have demonstrated that the balance of the equities tips in their favor. Against plaintiffs' concrete allegations of serious harm, the government advances only nebulous national security concerns. Although national security is unquestionably an issue of paramount public importance, it is not a talisman that the government can use to ward off inconvenient claims, a label used to cover a multitude of sins. That is especially true here because, as noted, the government's other statutory tools, including the existing rigorous individualized vetting process, already address the proclamation's purported national security concerns. Finally, plaintiffs and their amici have convincingly established that an injunction is in the public interest. As explained by the scores of amici who have filed briefs in support of plaintiffs, the proclamation has deleterious effects on our higher education system, national security, healthcare, artistic culture, and the nation's technology industry and overall economy. Accordingly, the Court of Appeals correctly affirmed, in part, the District Court's preliminary injunction. The First Amendment stands as a bulwark against official religious prejudice and embodies our nation's deep commitment to religious plurality and tolerance. That constitutional promise is why, for centuries now, people have come to this country from every corner of the world to share in the blessing of religious freedom. Instead of vindicating those principles, today's decision tosses them aside. 
in holding that the First Amendment gives way to an executive policy that a reasonable observer would view as motivated by animus against Muslims. The majority opinion upends this court's precedent, repeats tragic mistakes of the past, and denies countless individuals the fundamental right of religious liberty. Just weeks ago, the court rendered its decision in Masterpiece Cake Shop, which applied the bedrock principles of religious neutrality and tolerance in considering a First Amendment challenge to government action. Those principles should apply equally here. In both instances, the question is whether a government actor exhibited tolerance and neutrality in reaching a decision that affects individuals' fundamental religious freedom. But unlike in Masterpiece, where a state civil rights commission was found to have acted without the neutrality that the Free Exercise Clause requires, the government actors in this case will not be held accountable for breaching the First Amendment's guarantee of religious neutrality and tolerance. Unlike in Masterpiece, where the majority considered the state commissioner's statements about religion to be persuasive evidence of unconstitutional government action. The majority here completely sets aside the president's charged statements about Muslims as irrelevant. That holding erodes the foundational principles of religious tolerance that the court elsewhere has so emphatically protected, and it tells members of minority religions in our country that they are outsiders, not full members of the political community. Today's holding is all the more troubling given the stark parallels between the reasoning of this case and that of Korematsu v. United States, 1944. In Korematsu, the court gave a pass to an odious, gravely injurious racial classification authorized by an executive order. As here, the government invoked an ill-defined national security threat to justify an exclusionary policy of sweeping proportion. As here, the exclusion order was rooted in dangerous stereotypes about a particular group's supposed inability to assimilate and desire harm to the United States. As here, the government was unwilling to reveal its own intelligence agency's views of the alleged security concerns to the very citizens it purported to protect. And as here, there was strong evidence that impermissible hostility and animus motivated the government's policy. Although a majority of the court in Korematsu was willing to uphold the government's actions based on a barren invocation of national security, dissenting justices warned of that decision's harm to our constitutional fabric. Justice Murphy recognized that there is a need for great deference to the executive branch in the context of national security, but cautioned that it is essential that there be definite limits to the government's discretion, as individuals must not be left impoverished of their constitutional rights on a plea of military necessity 
that has neither substance nor support. Justice Jackson lamented that the court's decision upholding the government's policy would prove to be a far more subtle blow to liberty than the promulgation of the order itself, for although the executive order was not likely to be long-lasting, the court's willingness to tolerate it would endure. In the intervening years since Korematsu, our nation has done much to leave its sordid legacy behind. Today, the court takes the important step of finally overruling Korematsu, denouncing it as gravely wrong the day it was decided. This formal repudiation of a shameful precedent is laudable and long overdue, but it does not make the majority's decision here acceptable or right. By blindly accepting the government's misguided invitation to sanction a discriminatory policy motivated by animosity toward a disfavored group, all in the name of a superficial claim of national security, the court redeploys the same dangerous logic underlying Korematsu and merely replaces one gravely wrong decision with another. Our Constitution demands, and our country deserves, a judiciary willing to hold the coordinate branches to account when they defy our most sacred legal commitments. Because the court's decision today has failed in that respect, with profound regret, I dissent. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.